You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Uh, Right now, let's get into a Bible study. Amen? Amen. We're running a little behind on time, and so let's get our Bibles open. Find your way to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. We are going uh, verse by verse through the book of Matthew. We find ourselves here, chapter 14, and uh, a title that I have given the message, Finding Purpose in Life. Finding Purpose in Life. Life is incredibly rewarding when we, we begin to understand and to grasp the purpose that God has for us in this life. It is so easy to go through life wandering aimlessly, living for the moment, living for what we should eat, what we should wear, what we should drink, where we're going to go, what we're going to do, our entertainment, and to find that there is really no purpose in life. If there was ever a nation looking for meaning, significance, worth, and purpose, it is our nation today. And uh, in the scripture, in a relationship with Jesus Christ, there is incredible purpose to be found. I have a quote that I would like to start uh, this morning with uh, from Mark Twain. I love this quote. He says, the two most important days in life are the day you were born And the day you discover the reason why. Isn't that good? The day you were born and the the day you discover the reason why. Uh, God created you for a purpose. And when we enter into that, it is an amazing uh, time to to grow and to live and to live and and to accomplish the works that he has for us. It seems like there's not enough hours in the day. Uh, to accomplish what God has for us when we begin to walk in that purpose. Winston Churchill said this, It's not enough to have lived. We should be determined to live for something. And it's to that end that Jesus would uh, like to guide us. And I think that we're going to find some very interesting things today as we look at a story uh, that has a lot of intrigue. We've come to a scandalous story. We've come to a, a place in Scripture where, man, it plays out like a soap opera. Uh, it plays out like uh, uh, just a, well, the world was corrupt then and the world is corrupt now. That's all I can say. We're going to see an abuse of power. We're going to see some immorality. We're going to see corruption in government and in high places. But we're going to see the glory of God moving through all of it. Uh, to bring insight and direction. So let's jump in with that, and uh, we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 14. Are you there? Um, Matthew chapter 14, we'll pick it up in verse 1. At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard the report about Jesus. Yeah, Jesus' fame is growing renowned. That even the kings, even the magistrates, Even the rulers have heard about Jesus. They've heard about Jesus' teachings. They've heard of his profound insights and wisdom. His life-giving words. They've heard about his miracles. How he has restored the sight of the blind. How he has healed the paralytic. Told them to rise up and walk. And they rise up and walk. They've heard he's even risen the dead. And they have heard, now kings have heard about Jesus. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is arisen from the dead. And therefore, these powers are at work in him. 
Oh, interesting. Here we see some crazy thinking. Uh, Herod, we're going to learn in just a moment, he has killed John the Baptist. And now he hears about Jesus and he thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist reincarnated. And it's John the Baptist. That's why all these miracles are happening. Very interesting what a guilty conscience will do. A guilty conscience will do one of two things in our life. It will lead us to repentance. Or it will cause twisted and distorted and crazy thinking. And the latter is taking place for Herod here. He thinks that Jesus is a reincarnation of John. Let's read what it says. Uh, verse 3, we're going to get a flashback now of why Herod is having this thinking. This is what happened previously. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison. Why? Well, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Yeah, Herod had taken his brother Philip's wife and married her, and John called him out. We need more men like John the Baptist today, right? Who will stand up and call truth and just say it like it is. I admire that about John the Baptist. Verse 5. And although he, that's Herod, wanted to put him, that's John the Baptist, to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him, they counted John the Baptist as a prophet. And so Herod banished John the Baptist to Marachis and, uh, excuse me, Macheris and uh, uh, put him in a dungeon there. I've seen the dungeon and it's a horrible little pit of a, of, a, of a dungeon and he's locked up in there. And if you think about it, John the Baptist, he's an outdoorsman. He's a wilderness guy. He's a guy who loves the, green, the blue skies and the fresh air and the, the green trees and the, being in the land. I mean, he was, an out, he was a man's man, just an outdoorsman, right? And now God's man, this outdoorsman, locked up in a dungeon. Uh, incredible to consider. John had gotten himself thrown in this dungeon for calling out King Herod for stealing his half-brother Philip's wife, as I mentioned. And he told it like it is. And here's how it all happened. Herod had met uh, this woman uh, when he was on a trip to, uh, in Rome traveling. He met Herodias. And when he met her, they were both married. Herod was married and Herodias was married to Philip. They were both married already and they conspired together to divorce their spouses and to marry each other. Very interesting, by the way, uh, this marriage that Herod had with his first wife was a political arrangement. Uh, her, uh, his first wife's father was a king of an Arab nation uh, his name was Eratos, and it was a, an arranged marriage. And apparently, uh, the marriage was for the purpose of bringing peace between the Arabs and the Jews, right? Uh, a 2,000-year-old problem. Not much has really changed. And in this arranged marriage, Herod meets Herodias, and he says, Hey, I am done with her, and he sends her away, and he divorces her. Uh, history records, by the way, Eratos, this king of this Arab nation... He got so enraged that he killed hundreds of Herod's army, Herod's soldiers, and a war almost broke out. Uh, so interesting history. Uh, as you read, the, I'm going to give you a little history sidebar just for a second. As we read the Bible, we often get confused on the Herods. How many of you get confused as we're reading about Herod, which Herod this is? I want to help you just a bit. There's four Herods in the Bible. The first one, of course, is Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the wise master builder. He just was an architect, man. He, he built incredible things. Uh, he built uh, his uh, palaces all over uh, the land and, and just a master, master builder. Uh, he built these lavish, uh, lavish palace fortresses. Uh, his main palace fortress was uh, called Herodium 
just seven miles south of Jerusalem, and it was magnificent. In its day, it was 150 feet tall and very opulent, and uh, he built these palaces all over the place. Uh, he built them in Masada. Uh, how many of you have ever seen the movie Masada, by the way? Uh, not many hands. It'd be a great movie to watch. I think you can get it on Netflix. Just amazing. Masada was a palace for fortress that Herod built. It's down by the Dead Sea. And he was paranoid. He was always worried that someone was going to kill him. So he built strategically palace fortresses all over the place so that if he had to flee, he would have a place to go. And that's what uh, Masada was. And just an amazing history worth watching on TV if you, if you get a chance. He also built the palace fortress in Macheris. He built one at Caesarea Maritime. I've seen these places. They're amazing. Caesarea Maritime is just splendid. It has a, a little coliseum, a little hippodome there where they, where they would race chariots. And it overlooks the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. It's just beautiful. It's right on the water. He built a giant aqueduct that brought water from hundreds of miles away. It's just an engineering marvel. He built a harbor out there at Caesarea Maritime that was just amazing. And anyway, uh, all kinds of building projects. He uh, rebuilt the temple, right? He expanded the Temple Mount, made it huge, rebuilt Solomon's temple, made it glorious. It was one of the wonders of the world in that day. So that's Herod uh, the Great. He was also a, a cruel man. Uh, he murdered one of his wives. He murdered her grandfather, her brother. He murdered his three sons. Uh, murdered all kinds of people because he was paranoid. He was always afraid people were going to take over his, his, uh, his rule. And uh, that's why he built all these places as well. He just uh, trying to protect himself. Uh, that Herod is the same Herod, by the way, who killed the babies in Nazareth when he heard that Jesus was born for the same reason of his paranoia that that king would come up and be king of Jerusalem, right? So that's that Herod. Uh, after Herod the Great is Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is also called Herod the Tetrarch, that's the Herod that we're reading about here in our story. That was the son of Herod the Great. And uh, uh, Tetrarch is just a title. Tetra means four. And it's two Greek words put together. It's just a, a ruler over four regions. After Herod the Great died, Herod uh, the Tetrarch got four of the regions and that's what he ruled over. Uh, after him was Herod Agrippa. That was the grandson of Herod the Great. And it's this Herod Agrippa that was eaten by worms in Acts chapter 12. If you're wondering which guy that was, that was Herod Agrippa. And that's Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great. He had a son, Herod Agrippa II, or Herod Agrippa Jr. And uh, that, of course, was the son of Herod Agrippa. And these are the four Herods that are in the Bible. So uh, if you read through, you can try to figure out which one's which, and it helps a little bit. In our story, we're looking at this Herod Antipas here, Herod the Tetrarch, and uh, he wanted to kill John the Baptist. But the problem is, John the Baptist was so popular among the people. The people perceived John the Baptist as a prophet, and so Herod didn't kill him, and he throws him into this dungeon at uh, Macheris, and uh, Macheris is all the way down uh, by the Dead Sea. It's on the east side of the Dead Sea. So it's an arid, just a desert area, really dry. And this outdoorsman is there living in a dungeon, right? And, um, and uh, they're all because he spoke, spoke up for the truth. So let's move on. Let's go on in our story. Verse 6. So John the Baptist is in the dungeon, right? Verse 6. Now when Herod's birthday was celebrated... The daughter of Herodias. So that would be Philip's daughter, Herod's stepdaughter. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Philip's daughter that Herodias is divorced with is now Herod's stepdaughter. And at, the, at, at Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Yeah, she did a little sensual entertainment for the night. She had her booty shorts on or whatever she was wearing. I don't know. 
and danced there before Herod's birthday party and entertained all of them. Verse 7, therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Can somebody say dysfunctional? Is this crazy or what? I told you this is going to read like a soap opera, right? This is going to read like like HBO movie or something. This is crazy, right? Just crazy. So dysfunctional. His daughter-in-law dancing a sensual dance and uh, the dysfunction only gets worse. Look at verse 8. So she, that's the daughter, having been prompted by her mother, that's Herodias, said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Wow, what a vindictive woman. There are two really nasty, cruel, evil women in the Bible. Uh, One was Jezebel with the prophet Elijah. The other is Herodias. She is a wicked woman. You'll notice back in verse 2, Herod put her in prison. Look what it says. For the sake of Herodias, that was the reason. It was Herodias that hated John the Baptist. She wanted him dead because she did not like him standing up and calling her a sinner. Wow, wow. And so she tells her daughter, hey, when you dance for the guys tonight, if the king says, hey, well done, what would you like? I want you to ask for the head of John the Baptist. So dysfunctional, right? You thought your family was dysfunctional. Take a look at this, right? Crazy stuff. It shows how, what a bitter woman she was, how manipulative she was. And look at this, verse 9. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with them, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. Crazy, crazy. I wrote a little note for myself in the Bible right there after verse 10. I wrote, what a weak man. What a weak man. He caves to the, pay, the, the, the peer pressure. It says, because of those who sat with him, he didn't want to disappoint his Little inner, his little party that night, he has John beheaded. Very interesting. You'll notice verse 9, it says the king was sorry. When she asked for the head of John the Baptist, the king was sorry. And you would say, why? Well, something had happened. We don't know how long John the Baptist had been in the dungeon, but most scholars estimate it was close to a year. And during this year, that John was in this dungeon, something was happening. When Herod was at his palace fortress there in, in, where, where John was in the dungeon, he would often call for John and talk to John. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, gives us a little bit of instruction about that. Look at this verse. Let me hear you read this one thundering voice. Let's all read together. Herod respected John, and knowing that he was a good and holy man, he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked to John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. Interesting. A parallel account of the same story, and we get some additional insight from the Gospel of Mark that Herod would often call John, and even though he hated his message, he knew it was true, and he knew it was right, and he knew it was just. And I want you to know something. Uh, When you are a witness for Jesus, even if it acts like they're not hearing you, oh, it sinks into the heart and the message is heard. If you have a son or a daughter, or if you have a friend and you are sharing, or or you have a spouse and, and you're sharing your faith, a coworker, whatever, and it seems like it's going nowhere, know this, know this. It penetrates the heart. And the Holy Spirit is working with you to bring conviction and guidance. And that's exactly what was happening here in Herod's life. But he was a weak man. And instead of standing up and doing the right thing and saying, absolutely not, what is wrong with you, girl? 
Instead, he gives in to the peer pressure and just tries to please those around him. Just a chameleon. So many today are living for popular opinion. So many capitulate whenever the polls change. They just blow with every wind of doctrine regarding whatever the subject may be. Sexuality, marriage, what is sin, what is righteousness, whatever. And they don't stand. Would to God we had more men like John who would stand for truth. Uh, Herod is a coward. Verse 11, uh, verse 10. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Mommy, here you go. Crazy, right? Can you imagine how grotesque this bloody head on a platter? And she brings it and she goes, Mom, I accomplished what you wanted. Hope you're happy. Crazy. And it is this action that is haunting Herod. God was speaking to his heart, trying to get him to repent. He resisted, and now he is just, instead of repenting, uh, he resisted, and now he is just having crazy thoughts and crazy behaviors, even delusion. This is what happens when we ignore God's call to repent, and uh, it haunted him. Verse 12. So his disciples came and took away the body. That's John the Baptist's disciples came and took away John's body and gave it a proper burial and went and told Jesus. Verse 13, and when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. Jesus was, his heart was grieved. John was a good man. He loved John. And to process his grief, he goes and he gets away from everything and he spends time with the Lord. This was often spoken of Jesus. Jesus departing into a secret place and spending time with the Lord. Uh, so important, right? So important. Uh, but when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. In chapter 13, uh, where we were last week... We saw, uh, last couple of weeks, we saw Jesus taught in parables. And in the kingdom parables, there was this reoccurring teaching that Jesus was trying to drive home to us. And that reoccurring teaching in the parables was simply this. He was saying, this is what church life is like. Uh, these parables were, were telling us, this is what church life is going to be like from the from the time of my first coming all the way to the time of my second coming this is what it's going to be like and this is what he would often speak in these parables he would teach us that good and evil are both at work at the same time god is working and evil is at work good and evil are at work at the same time and we see that here in our story both works happening at the same time. And it's so important that we understand as believers, as Christians, if you're a Christian here today, uh, there's good and evil happening at the same time. And we see this when we look at, at the world, whether we look at the world in a macro level, we look at the world in a big picture, or on a micro level, we look in our own small areas, we see that God is working and evil is working at the same time. On a, on a macro level, on a world level, we saw some crazy things happening in the world in the last couple of weeks. In France, we saw a teacher who was beheaded, just like John the Baptist. Beheaded for what reason? Showing a cartoon character to his class of the prophet Muhammad. And a Muslim comes along and beheads him. And we learned this week that there were seven people involved in that murder. And what's crazy is Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, comes and, and, and speaks against this horrific act. And he says, hey, look, free speech is important. And if you can't just chop off someone's head because they have a different opinion than you. And he stands up for justice and for free speech. And what happens? Have you been watching the news? I meant to put a picture of this on the screens. 
tens of thousands in Arab nations start protesting against France. And they're upholding this crazy wickedness. And they want to boycott all of all French products. Crazy. And if we look at the world on a macro level, we see evil is at work, even as God is at work. Even in our own country, we see a nation divided like never before. Maybe not since the Civil War has there been such polarization. And this Tuesday, we have an election. And who knows what is going to happen after this election. We want to be prepared. Don't be troubled if the world goes into chaos. God is at work. And evil is also at work. And by the way, this Tuesday, if your team wins, be a gracious winner. And if your team loses, be a gracious loser. You see, people's identities are getting caught up in political parties. That's always a mistake. Our identity and our worth should never be found in a political party. What a wrong way to go about life, right? But that is the case. So if your team wins or loses, uh, have some grace. Don't flaunt it. Don't brag. Don't taunt online or in person, right? Use some wisdom. Use some wisdom. And so we see on a macro level, evil is at work in our day. God is at work in our day. On a micro level, we see it in our own lives. Our families. Our kids, oh, we have a desire in our, heart, in our hearts. We want to do good. We want to follow Jesus. We want to bless others. We want to be selfless. But we struggle with sin. And we struggle with selfishness. And we struggle with doing the right thing and immorality and lying and being prideful and being arrogant. And, and we see that God is at work, but also Evil is at work at the same time, even in our own lives at a micro level. And this, Jesus said, is what the kingdom is like. It is why it is so important that as Christians, we have discipline and self-control. Important virtues that we need to exercise and strengthen in our life through prayer and through fasting and through the study of God's Word so that we're not controlled by the desires of our flesh. Edmund Burke has a great quote. Uh, I would love you to, to read it with me, if you will, on the screens. Uh, let me hear you read this out loud. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Wow, what a great quote. Let me hear you read it by yourselves out loud for me one more time, if you will. The only thing... Interesting. It's for good men to do nothing. What Edmund Burke is saying is, if Christians get lazy, if they get apathetic, or if we abdicate our God-given response, responsibilities as followers of Jesus Christ, evil will run rampant. And we are seeing that in our day. I am thankful for men like John the Baptist who will stand up against truth, uh, stand up for truth, stand up against evil. Because if God's people would do that, well, here's what the Bible says, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and repent from their evil deeds and, and turn to me, I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. What's that? If we would stand for what is right, if we would repent from what is wrong, God would move and, and He would bring healing in our land. Isn't it interesting how we, we know that good and evil are at work, but isn't it interesting how we're always surprised when evil comes along our way? We have a son or a daughter that goes wayward, and we're like, what the heck? I raised him in a Christian home. Hey, God is at work, but evil is also at work. Maybe we have a relationship, and that relationship gets difficult. We wonder, what the heck? Hey, evil is at work, and God is also at work. 
And so we see these things. The answer to why all these things go, go this way. The answer of why am I so selfish? Why do I still struggle with the same sin? Here's why. Because God is at work and evil is at work. And here's something that is really important for us to hold on to. You might want to write this down. It is important that we know this. We were not born on a cruise ship. We were born on a battleship. And until we understand that, we will live a largely ineffective life. Unless we understand this fact, we will live a largely ineffective life. We've been called by God to stand for something. God wants to use our lives. And success is not found on the cruise ship, living for wealth, living for comfort, living for ease. What we should eat, what we should drink, what we should wear, where are you going to go tonight? What, let's go do this, entertainment, just busy, busy, busy. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to have an empty life. You're going to have an empty life. It doesn't work. You're going to be like Herod, who will just fall for anything. Anytime a different wind blows his way, you'll have no backbone, you'll have no character, and your life will be meaningless. This is the case of Herod. Even though he had a kingdom, he had nothing. Success is not found in wealth or in comfort or in making life easy. It's found in making a difference in the world. It's found in glorifying Jesus Christ. And when we do, rejection will always be, uh, be present. Opposition will always be present. That's just the way it is. It'll be present among those who are poor. It'll be present among those who are rich. Last week we read in, in uh, uh, Matthew 13, Jesus, he was rejected where? In his own hometown. His hometown was what? Nazareth. You know what Nazareth was? Nazareth was a poor town. It was like national city. It was dirty. It was dank. It was rough, man. Nothing good came out of national city. Man, it was like rough. And no offense on national city. I'm just giving you a parallel of what it was like. Nazareth was a, a dark place. And there among the poor, Jesus was not received. Now here we are in chapter 14 and we're in a king's palace. And God's work is still being rejected and oppressed. Why? Because we weren't born where? On a cruise ship, we were born where? On a battleship. John's life still has incredible purpose. Herod's life has no significance whatsoever. Interesting. Interesting. Even though there is rejection, I have good news. Even though there's opposition, I have good news. God's kingdom still stands. And God's sovereign plans cannot be stopped. Jesus said, my kingdom will come. My will will be done on this earth just as it is in heaven. And I am tremendously comforted to know that even though amidst all of the chaos... Jesus is still on the throne. It brings me great comfort. Therefore, I don't lose heart at the tribulation in the world. Jesus said it was coming. He said, my peace I give, but not as the world gives. The world gives peace when, when you go to Disneyland. Let's go to the movies. Let's go to Steak and Lobster. That's peace. Jesus says, my peace I give, but not as the world gives I give. I give a peace that surpasses understanding. That even though the world might be falling apart, I'm still in control, I'm still leading, and I'll still use your life. That's a life of purpose right there. And I love the old hymn that says, This is my Father's world, and let me never forget that although the wrong seems oh so strong, God is the ruler yet. And all things are under His sovereign hand, and nothing escapes His detail. Here's the question. Are we standing for Jesus or are we standing against Jesus? It is one or the other. There is no middle ground. John the Baptist was standing for Jesus. Herod, he was against Jesus. How many of you would think, 
Herod made a conscious decision that day to go against God. Probably wasn't conscious. Probably didn't realize what he was doing. But here's the thing. He was definitely against God. And when we are living to gratify our own desires, we are not standing for Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. There is no neutral ground. And to be undecided is to be decided. If you haven't made a decision to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, oh, I'd encourage you, make it today. Don't be like Herod. Don't be like Herod, who had the opportunity to repent. God sent him a prophet, an amazing prophet. Jesus said, of men born of women, none greater than John the Baptist. I know when John stood before Herod, John was preaching the gospel to Herod. He was telling him, hey, you could be saved. I know you're a wicked man. I know you married your, your uh, half-brother's wife. I know you've committed murder. I know you've done all kinds of things. But repentance can be yours if you will come and if you will allow Jesus Christ to be your Lord. He heard the message and he hardened his heart. And you know what's fascinating? It is this same Herod, this same Herod the Tetrarch, who Jesus stands before after his trial with Pilate. Pilate sends him to this Herod and Jesus said what? Not one word to him. Herod had great desire to see Jesus and Jesus would not speak one word to him. His opportunity for repentance had passed. There comes a day when you can harden your heart against God one too many times and God will no longer grant you repentance. I want you to know if God doesn't grant you repentance, you don't have a chance in hell of ever repenting. And I mean that word literally, not as a swear word. God has to grant us repentance. And if we harden our heart to Him, uh, there's, no, there's no choice. There's no chance. No chance. So are you standing for Jesus? Or are you standing against Jesus? Are you living for self? Like Herod? Or are you living for Jesus? Like John the Baptist? It's one or the other. Are you building His kingdom? Are you telling others? Jesus wants to bring incredible purpose to our life. I have a question for you. Does your life have purpose? Allow yourself to hear the words. Meditate on them. Does your life have purpose? You were created for far more than going to heaven one day at the end of this life. That's not why God created you. Do you realize that salvation, salvation from hell, the gift of heaven, that's the starting line, not the finish line? Did you realize that? That's just getting back to square one of why God created you? You were created to be in fellowship with God. You were in created, created to do life with Him. You were created to have all your sin forgiven freely so that you didn't have to stress over it. You could receive salvation as a free gift so that you could understand God's great love for you and go, God, you're amazing. I want to know a God who loves me that much. You'd forgive me even though I'm a murderer, even though I'm a rapist, even though I'm a drug dealer, even though I'm an alcoholic, even though I was a prostitute, even though I'm an uh, egotistical pig. You'd forgive me? Yeah, I will. Uh, 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 even though you, you... Yeah, I'll forgive you. But I won't forgive you just so you continue sinning. I'll forgive you so that we can have a relationship. That's why I created you. I wanted you to know my great love for you. And now I want you to walk with me. And as we walk with him, he does something spectacular. If we will quit anesthetizing ourselves with all the entertainment that the world has to offer, and we would actually consider what we were created for. Mark Twain, the greatest day in a person's life is the day they are born and the day they realize why. And if we will realize why, here's what Jesus will do. He says, I will lead, guide, and direct you into all truth. 
I will impart wisdom into your life. I will give you discernment. I will give you, I will endow you with gifts that will enable you to live out this life that I've called. I will impart wisdom to you so that you can give it to others so that your family will be profound. Your relationships will be amazing. Your, your friendships, your character, your influence will be huge. I will make you like a light in the world. I will make you like a flavoring on the earth. And everywhere you go, you will bring glory to me because I have a plan and a purpose for your life. Someone say, man, that's amazing. What a good God. This is what Jesus does. You were created to have a meaningful life. Does your life have purpose? Oh, we get lost along the way. And here's what Jesus does. To those who got lost in fishing, thinking that building their business was the most important thing. If I could have the biggest fishing business, if I could... Uh, you know, make a lot of money fishing. Oh, then I'd be something. Here's what Jesus did. He comes to those men and he says, hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. You see, there's a lot more purpose in life than just catching fish. Is that what you're living for? Does your life have purpose? I want to give you a far greater purpose. Follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. To those, uh, to the woman at the well, who thought that life's purpose was in relationships. Oh, I know if I could just have a meaningful relationship with a man who loves me, then my life will have purpose. Then I'll have worth. Then I'll be, if I'm loved, I'll be something. I, it's, the answer's got to be in a relationship. And so she goes from relationship to relationship, five marriages looking for purpose and worth and meaning in life. And now she's just living with a guy. And Jesus comes up to her and says, Oh, woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was standing here with you, you would ask him and he would give you living water, overflowing, pouring out, not only enough to satisfy your own soul with meaning and purpose, but enough to pour out and to give to others. I would give your life purpose. This is who Jesus is. To those who are living for what they should eat, what they should drink, what they should wear, Jesus comes to them and says, do not labor for food that perishes, but labor for the food that leads you to everlasting life, to life abundant, a relationship with me, Jesus would speak. This is what he does. Does your life have purpose? You were created to be a kingdom builder. Take a look at the street right now as all the cars are driving by. Take a look at all the people that are, that are around. Light's red right now. They'll be piling in just a moment. Take a look at behind you. Look at the freeway. Look at all the myriads of cars going by. Look at the cars here now waiting at the light. Do you want to know something about all of these people? They are all longing for purpose, for worth, for significance. Man is hungry for it. People are longing for it. And they're looking for it in all the wrong places. Through relationships, through entertainment, through their sports accomplishments, whatever the case may be. Uh, always looking for something to find worth and purpose and it can't be found there. I found it very interesting, by the way, as I was looking at this spectacle called Black Lives Matter. A very interesting thing that's happened in our midst. And I noticed something very peculiar about this movement. I love the name, by the way, Black Lives Matter. What a great name. For there is a, uh, you know, an injustice in the world. And what a great name to bring awareness. I love it. But I do not like the organization whatsoever. Great name, not so great organization. But that's not what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is the phenomena of what happened under the Black Lives Matter movement. For the statistics, the statistics, <laughs> easy for me to say, have shown something very interesting. Take a look at this. 
on the Black Lives Matter movement, the vast majority of protesters have been white. As a matter of fact, 78% of the protesters in the Black Lives Matter movement have been Caucasian. 15% have been Hispanic. 4% have been Asian. And only 3% have been African Americans. Very, very interesting. And you say, Dave, well, so what? What is your point? I don't understand. Here's my point. It reveals that people are looking for purpose. People are looking for something significant to belong to. People are looking for something that matters. People are looking to make a difference. And we foolishly align ourselves with things that will not bring purpose into our life. Rioting will not make a difference, right? I mean, that's not the right way to go. But it shows that people are looking for purpose. And I want you to know that uh, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is not the answer. But neither is putting all your eggs in the Republican basket or in the Democratic basket. Neither is that the answer. We will not find purpose and worth in these things. And the reason there's so much polarization today is because we're getting our identity now from our politics. And that is messed up. Our identity is meant to be found where? In your creator. Let us make man and woman in our, in our image. And in the image of God, he created them both male and female. Jesus was asked, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus said, take out a coin. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. Therefore, give to Caesar what is Caesar. But then he said something very interesting. He said, give to God what is God's. And it's as if Jesus was saying this, hey, who, whose head is on the coin? That's Caesar's head. But whose image is on you? That's God's image. And give to Caesar what was made in his image, but give to God what was made in his image. That's where worth is found. That's where purpose is found. And it's so important. Hey, I want you to know this. Jesus wants to use our life. And purpose in life is found in serving Jesus. That's where purpose is found. Jesus wants to pour into our lives to save us and to give us all the wisdom and discernment and insight. And, and there's so much wisdom in His Word that He wants to pour into you. So that you can be a bright light to your children, to your neighbors, and to the world. And that your life might have purpose. He leads us to Himself. That we might be secure in our relationship with Him. Not trying to find our identity in some movement or in politics. Because our identity is secure. Our worth has been revealed from what Jesus paid for us. You are worth the highest price. Jesus paid everything. And then he invites us, now that we have found our worth, he then equips us with wisdom, and then he invites us to be builders of his kingdom. And he uses us to help others come to Jesus so that they can be saved and filled with wisdom and discernment and find their worth and purpose and go out and live a meaningful life. This is his ways. And it's amazing. It's amazing. The surprise blessing of all surprises in life. The surprise blessing is this. That it's in serving Jesus that our lives find incredible purpose. It's the biggest surprise of all surprises. We would think that by going to Maui for a few weeks, we would find our purpose. But that's not how it works. It's in serving Jesus that we find our purpose. Now watch how Jesus does this. We'll, we'll wrap up with this passage of Scripture and then we'll prepare our hearts for communion. Look what Jesus does. Verse 14. Back to Matthew 14. Are you there with me? Verse 14. Well, we'll go back to 13. Jesus heard it and he departed from there. He heard about John's head being cut off. And he parted, departed from there by boat to a deserted place. Spent some time with the Lord in prayer. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on, on foot from the cities. And look at verse 14. 
And when Jesus went out, he saw the great multitude, and read these words with me, and what he was what? Moved with compassion. Amazing. Amazing. Jesus sees all the murder. He sees all the rape. He sees all the protesting. He sees all the riots. He sees all the looting that's going on. And when he sees all the looting that's going on, he's not moved to wrath. He's moved with compassion. Jesus has so much compassion on our plight. These guys looking over here at you on the Harleys. Oh, they're looking for identity in their Harleys. And Jesus sees them and he doesn't say, what's wrong with you? Aren't you a little old to have leather tassels hanging on your jacket? No, no, no. He doesn't say that. He's moved with compassion for them. Moved with compassion. And look what he does. He was moved with compassion for them and he healed their sick. He healed their addictions. He healed their delusional thinking. He healed their selfishness. He healed their big ego that wanted to be the best. He healed them. He preached to them all day long. And he taught them about the gospel. And he taught them about the Father's love. And the forgiveness and the grace. And he imparted to them wisdom and truth. So they could have insight. And their hearts were touched. And he heals them. He takes away their blindness and He gives them sight. He takes away their deaf ears and they're able to hear. And now uh, He heals them. And look at this, verse 15. And when it was evening, His disciples came to Him saying, This is a deserted place. And the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. They were tired. They had done church all day long. They had been ushering and greeting and setting up chairs. And now the day is starting to come to sunset. And they said, Jesus, uh, we're tired, man. We're hungry. Send these guys away. Jesus was moved with compassion for the multitudes. It's crystal clear the disciples, what? Were not moved with compassion for the people. Send them away. We're hungry. Send them away. We want to do our own thing. And look what Jesus says. Verse 16. Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. I want you to read the next word. What is it? You. I want you to circle it. Say it again. What's the word? You. Uh, now say the word me. Me. Yeah, Jesus says, Hey, I want you to give them something to eat. There were over 5,000 men there, plus women, plus children. And Jesus looks at his 12 guys and he says, Hey, I'm moved with compassion for them. I want you to be moved with compassion for them. Don't send them away. Instead, give them something to eat. What do you think all of the, all 12, what do you think they all thought? Not a chance. I got 40 bucks in my pocket. I got nothing. How am I going to feed all these people? Look what happens. Verse 17. They said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. I got nothing. Verse 18, Jesus said, bring them here to me. I want you to know something. Pay attention to what's happening here because this is exactly how God works in our life. What do you have? Not much. Good. Bring it to me. And I'll do supernatural things with it. This is how God works. When God called Moses, after he was an utter failure, after he had lost his position to be the leader of the world and is now just a shepherd taking care of sheep for 40 years, God appears to him at a burning bush. And here's the question that God asks Moses. Do you remember what he asked him? What is in your hand? And what did Moses say? Nothing. Just a stick. And here's what God said. Give it to me. Bring it to me. Lay it down. And I will do supernatural things with it. 
Young David, called by God to be the next king of Israel. And God calls him and says, David, what is in your hand? And David says, not much. Just a little sling. God says, bring it to me. And we'll slay evil with it. This is how Jesus works. What is in your hand? Not much. Just a fishing net. Bring it to me. I'll make you fishers of men. This is how Jesus works. And look what he does. They say, look, we don't have nothing, man. Just these five little bloves, these two little fish. Jesus says, bring it to me. Verse 19. Then he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. The other gospels tell us he broke them into groups, like mission groups. He breaks them into mission groups. And he took them, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up into heaven, Jesus does something here. I want you to number. I want you to number what he does, because this is how he moves. This is how this is what he does. The first thing he does, what does it say he does? He does? He blessed it. He blessed it. The second thing he did, he broke it. Put a little number three here. The third thing he did, he gave the loaves to the disciples. And the fourth thing he did. He had the disciples give to the multitudes. And I want you to know this is exactly how Jesus works in our life. Do you understand? Here's what happened. On the cross, Jesus, he was there for our sins. And on the cross, what did he say? He blessed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was moved with compassion. Father, forgive them for trying to get their identity in a Harley. I'm not against Harleys, by the way. I love motorcycles. But there's no identity there. Father, forgive them for murdering their own kids. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them for thinking they can get identity from a political party. They don't know what they're doing. What does he do? We take the small thing that is in our hands and he blesses. The second thing he does is he breaks. He gives his life on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. And he who was sinless took the sin of the world on his own shoulders and he broke. In just a moment, we're going to partake communion. And he's going to say, do this in remembrance of me. My body broken for you. He blessed. He broke. The third thing he does, he then what? Gives to the disciples. He gives to his own, to his kids. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus manifests himself. He resurrected and he revealed himself to the disciples. And then at Pentecost, he endowed them with gifts and he sends them out to the multitudes. He blessed, Father forgive them. He broke on the cross. He gave to the disciples and he sends the disciples out to the multitudes. And it's here that the, multi that the disciples find their purpose. Just amazing. Look at verse 20. So they all ate and they were all, circle the word with me, they were all what? Filled. They ate to abundance. They were totally filled. And they took up 12 basketfuls of fragments. And now those who had eaten were five, about 5,000 men besides women and children. Oh, how amazing it is. How amazing. This is what Jesus does. And I want to ask you, how much worth do you think the disciples had after this experience after they took the small thing that they had and they gave it and used it for Jesus wow amazing worth amazing purpose amazing reason to live and you say hey that's great man I get it you know if I want to find worth I'll find it in serving Jesus but I don't know how to serve Jesus can I tell you something it's really simple take what you have no matter how small it is, take what you have and bring it to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to use this for you. Will you use this? 
He said, I don't have much. I only have a hundred bucks. No problem. Take it and use it for Jesus. How so? Just bring it to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I got a hundred bucks. I want to take four people out to lunch this week. Four people out to lunch. I just want to give it to you. I want to ask that you would use this. I want to take four people out. And I just want to show them your love. I want to be a witness to you in some way. Even if it's nothing more than just at the end of the lunch, end of the lunch saying, you know what? Uh, I really appreciate you. And Jesus has really blessed my life. And, and I just wanted to spend some time with you. I just wanted to buy your lunch. God's been good to me. And I, I want him to be good to you as well. What good is that going to do? It's only just a lunch. Oh, it's amazing what God will do if we bring it to Jesus first. And you say, well, I don't have a hundred bucks. I would say, yes, you probably do. You see, it's going to cost you something to be a servant of Jesus. What if that boy would have said, no, I don't want to give my bread and my two fish. Uh, what if the disciples would have said that? They would have missed out on the worth and the purpose of being used by God to be kingdom builders. It's going to cost you something. No, Dave, I really don't have a hundred bucks. Okay, no problem. I work for minimum wage. No problem. I get it. Okay, then do this. You know what I've always wanted to do? I've always wanted to have a, an Uber ministry here at the church. Take your car and say, hey, I'll be an Uber driver for the Lord just a couple hours a week and map out a little distance, 10 mile a geofence around the mission church and pick up people here on Carlsbad Village Drive and take them to where they're going and share the love of Jesus with them. And as you drive by the mission church, go, hey, by the way, that's my church. Jesus has been so good to me. He's blessed my life abundantly. And you say, oh, I don't really like strangers in my car. Hey, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. But oh, how much you're going to get from it. I want you to know something. The last point I want to leave you with. Serving Jesus is not complex. We serve Jesus by serving people in Jesus' name. It's not complex. What is in your hand? Bring it to Jesus and let him use it. And let your life be filled with purpose. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.